Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Well, good morning. Uh, genuinely, I'm glad to be able to worship with you this morning. I pray that God would use us while we're together. Uh, to, to benefit each other for His kingdom and His glory. Uh, we are working through a series of questions that have been asked about uh, various uh, subjects uh, pertaining to our own daily lives and what Scripture has to say about those things specifically. And so today the question is, what does the Bible say about money? And everybody groans and moans and says, what in the world do I need to know that for? So uh, what does the Bible say about money? Surely uh, the Bible would have some good information and, and relevance to how a Christian ought to approach financial decision making. And, uh, and so today when we, we use specific words, we're not talking about having a lot or having little necessarily. Uh, money, finances in Scripture is a huge, huge subject. We can't possibly get to everything that Scripture says about it. Uh, and so I'm uh, going to be as, as general uh, with, uh, with regard to the subject as, as possible, some, some takeaways that will help all of us and not speak too specifically to one particular thing. For instance, this is not a message on tithing. This isn't a message on giving more. Uh, those messages should stand alone. So today is just a general overview of what does Scripture have to say. So, and, I would, and I would say right from the very beginning, we would have to recognize that God is a giver. And so if we're going to have God formed in us and through us and look more and more like Him, then we would be needing to take on His characteristics. So it says that God is generous God. Scripture says that God is a, a gift giver. Uh, and He doesn't give with partiality, which means that He doesn't, have, he doesn't play favorites. Uh, I think you also have a hard time having a formula for who God gives to and who God takes away from. It's really hard to, to determine how God is going to work uh, in, in regard to those things. Uh, but from the very beginning, let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And you know any time that a, that a preacher starts the message in Genesis chapter 1, it's going to be a dandy, right? But you go all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and you find on day 1 he created the light, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5. God is creating and preparing everything for day 6. Because on day 6 he creates man. And he has man placed in the Garden of Eden. And so before God created man, he gave man everything he would need to be fruitful, to be successful, and to be uh, holistically uh, capable of giving God his greatest glory. So when man took his first breath, God was already a giver and had prepared everything for, for Adam. Uh, and, and God already knew that he was going to create woman because he told Adam that his responsibility was to replenish the earth. Uh, and so to, uh, to procreate. So we already knew that there was going to be a woman, but it was necessary for Adam to recognize his need, and then God delivered. Did you, you also see, so this is when God created everything, but when God created his own chosen people, the Jews, he, he used 
Abraham. And so while God proved he is a generous giver in creation, he proves it again that he is generous to his people through Abraham when he commands Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, the one that he had promised blessing through. Abraham, now I want you to take his life. And Abraham does this. He travels and he goes up on top of Mount Moriah, has the knife in his hand, ready to plunge it into his own son's body and the angel stays his hand and says you've proven that you've been faithful now look and there was another sacrifice provided by God in the in the the thorns and the thistles right and and so this is a Abraham in fact called this mountain uh, called God's name uh, Jehovah Jireh God provides And so when God establishes creation, He provides. When God establishes people, He provides. And so we find from the beginning to the end that sometimes God provides material. Sometimes God provides His presence. But God is a good giving God. And so when we live in this world, the world that we we currently live in revolves around money. Money, money, money. And we are consumed with thinking about money. Uh, You... uh, Uh, Money is not an essential part of life. In other words, you don't have to have money to live, uh, to breathe. uh, But but certainly, it is a significant portion of our life will revolve around earning, saving, giving, spending. And so, relationship to money isn't something that we can just say, well, this is my spiritual life and this is my financial life. Money isn't something you can just brush aside as something that's unspiritual or unnecessary. Uh, But it is a medium of exchange so that we don't have to barter anymore is really all that it is. But here's one thing that we need to know about money just getting started. All right, it's very important. We're going to draw some really clear conclusions today on money, and this is the first one. Money in and of itself is amoral. Now, I didn't say immoral. It is amoral. What it means is money does not have a life. Money cannot act on its own. It cannot do good deeds and it cannot commit crimes. So basically, we are talking about money that is not good and is not bad. Money will only do what we tell it to do. Money is not the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of every sort of evil. So why does the church, people say this all the time, we go to church and talk about money. Uh, and and I, I would say, and not in a, in a proud way, our church doesn't talk about money much. Uh, and, and one of the reasons why is apparently, uh, you know, many, many churches are afraid of offending people. Uh, and so that's not necessarily why. I just think that if we could get our, I don't want it to sound judgmental. So if it, just, if it sounds judgmental, you misunderstood me. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Somebody got that. Uh, if you ever misunderstand me you uh, or uh, are offended, you misunderstood me. Only kidding. So uh, I'm convinced that when we get our life right with Jesus Christ, our life will become right in regard to money. So if we preach on issues and leave out Jesus, we can live morally, but for what reason? But once our, our fixation is on the life of Jesus Christ, everything else seems to sort itself out. Now, there are some ground rules and some commandments that we need to try to keep and make sure that we teach those regularly. But boy, I think the New Testament would shout, keep your eyes on Jesus. Uh, And so that's what we really try to do. So that's one of the reasons we don't talk so much about money. But 
Uh, I would also say this for those who would say the church talks too much about money or expects too much of money. I I want to say this. The church talks about money a whole lot less than Jesus does. And, And again, I said this the very first week of this series is that there's only so much that a preacher can, can give or to teach. Uh, I, Jesus teaches us, and I think, in fact, that all of Scripture teaches us, that we should be people of the Word every day. If all you're getting is, is information from your, from your pastor once or twice a week, you're not getting enough to live by. Uh, we just don't have enough time to do that. So you need to be people of the Word. We're going to talk about money today, but man, there's so much in here that could help guide our days if we would just spend time in it on our own. So consider these statistics. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables were in regard to money. Half of every story that Jesus told revolved around money and possessions. 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship. One out of every ten verses in the gospel deals with money. There are more than 2,000 independent scriptures on tithing in the Bible. Money and possessions, and that's twice as many as involve faith and prayer combined. Twice as much. That's prayer and faith. So many verses in the Bible talk about money, and for good reason too, which leads me to this next point, and that is this. There is then a direct correlation between the way we handle and the way we process and the way we approach money and our faith. So all of a sudden, money, while it is amoral, it does not have a sense of good and bad, it is a spiritual discipline. It is a spiritual discipline. So when it comes to money, we will either worship wealth or we will worship with our wealth. And there's a big difference between the two. And I'm afraid that that many times there's a blind spot between the two as well. From the seduction of success to the lure of lust, there are many things in this world that's going to vie for our attention and our focus and our affection, but the most significant, I believe that Matthew chapter 6 teaches us, the most significant idol that we will be attracted to and deal with is is finances. It's going to be the biggest issue that all of us face. Now, we know that God desires our devotion, and He knows that we're going to come face to face with temptation. And since the love of money is the root of every sort of evil, if our approach to money is messed up, then we're going to deal with every sort of other thing. Fear, and pride, and arrogance, and greed, and pleasure, and all sorts of other selfishness comes because we have a wrong approach to finances. I believe that's one of the reasons why Jesus talks about it so often. Money may be amoral, but our attachment to it and our worship of money and possessions, and, and I'll say, so possessions, you know, sometimes that's, it's not our money, it's what we want our money to do for us, which, again, money can't do anything. It's guided and directed by our hearts. That's the issue. And so our time is also very valuable, and we want to be able to spend free time. I mean, who doesn't want more free time in their life, right? More free time. And in order to get more free time, what do I need more of? 
Come on, that's not rocket science. If I need more time off, if I need more time off to be able to do what I want to do, what do I need more of? Money, that's right. And so I work harder, I work more, I push myself harder because I need more and I wear myself out so I can have free time. Well, listen, free time isn't free at all. It costs us a lot. We focus our lives on money so that we can focus on recreation, leisure, trips, travel. But it keeps us focused on money. And sometimes, sometimes... That leads us into sin, and it causes us to make poor financial decisions, and then also poor time management decisions. Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 24 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I think that this is, the, this is going to be the, the kind of the launching off verse, because uh, I think Jesus is teaching this very specific thing. And I think that we've misunderstood it. Say, so where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So a lot of people will say, well, look at your bank account, and you'll be able to see, or your checking account, you'll be able to see what matters to you. And that is not what Jesus is teaching at all. What Jesus is teaching is, is that, that you will put your resources where God's heart is. You will develop God's heart. So, for instance, you say, well, I want to be able to give, I want to be generous, I'll give where my heart tells me or where I'm passionate. That's not what Jesus teaches. What Jesus teaches is that you give through the storehouse and the storehouse will cultivate the heart of the Father. The storehouse being the church. And again, this is not a, you should give more money to the church sermon, although you should. Uh, but, but here's why. Here's why. Because when you give to the local church, I don't know, we can't afford to give. Why can't we afford to give? Well, I just can't afford it. Because we're spending all of our time on our free time. That's, that's why. But if you will spend your money, your resources on the local church, you will develop a heart for the local church. And when your money all comes in together and rubs elbows with everybody else's money, Jesus knows that where your money is, that's where your heart will be. And you'll start developing a heart for the people you worship with. And you'll develop a relationship with the people you worship with. And you'll be able to serve with the people that you worship with. And then, out of the overflow of that, the church should be giving its resources away to the community. And as you are giving and creating relationships with one another, you develop a heart for Christ's church. And the church develops a heart for lost people that are out in the neighborhoods. Why? Because we're investing money in them. That's why. We develop a heart for the nations. Why? Because we're investing money in our missionaries. We're investing money in the Word of God. We're investing money everywhere. And God knows who, who starts with saying, you know what, I think, I think I'm going to just throw my money wherever it goes. We would never do that. We need to give where God's heart is, and then we will develop God's heart. That's what Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12. Give where He has commanded, and He, he will bless you with a heart and a love for the things that He loves. So the first thing that I want us to recognize this morning is that God owns Everything. I know you've heard me say this before. This is not a tithing message in addition to, to that. But some people think that, well, I give God, uh, you know, whatever. I give Him a percentage, 10% or, you know, wherever you start. I give God 10%, the other 90% is mine. But listen, you give God 10%, guess what? Whatever you give God was His while it was still in your pocket. You cannot give to God. Well, it'd be the same way as having your little kid bring you something that's already in your home 
And now that happens, and they give it to you as a gift, and what do you say? Oh, thank you. Why? Because they just revealed their heart for you. But you already own this thing. It's not The gift isn't the big deal. The heart is the big deal, right? So when you bring your treasure into the storehouse, God's not saying, oh, I'm so, I'm so needful of their money. Finally, they're getting it. That money was His already. If that money that you give to Him was His already, the money that's still in your pocket after you give belongs to Him too. You don't own anything. It's all His. Everything is His. In fact, Scripture after Scripture after Scripture tells us that everything that you can think belongs to Him already. It's all His. It's all His. And so God isn't broke. He doesn't need you to offer Him a lending hand. Because so, so, and I would say this too. People, we talk, we talk about earning money. I earn money. This, you've never earned a dime in your life. You know how I know that? Because if you earn it, you own it. You don't own anything. So whatever you have earned comes from the strength that you put forth, the mind that you put forth, your heart that you put forth, your work ethic that you put forth, and everything that I just mentioned belongs to the Lord. And He can take it all away. So whatever, you know, the independent thinking, pull ourselves up from the bootstraps and I owe no man nothing, that's idolatry. Everything belongs to Him. And when you start thinking about it, then all of a sudden, I don't own anything. I'm a steward of everything. A steward. Which means that He allows me to participate in His global plan. So, since He is the rightful owner of everything we have, it means the money, everything that we, or even our time belongs to Him. And here's something else that's very important. Even the money that you earned, and this is negative, but it's true. Whenever he wants it back, he'll take it. You don't have to give it. <laughs> if he wants it, he'll take it. So, Exodus 19.5. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. All the earth is mine. Job 41.11, who has first given to me that I should repay him. In other words, what God is telling Job here is this idea of I'm in need, you give me money. And you know what? Because you helped me, whenever you're in need, I'll give you money. And then we just back and forth, kind of a mutual relationship. What the Lord is saying is, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine, he said. See, God isn't in this, you know what, you've been so good to pay your tithes, I think I'm going to just give you a little extra. When God gave me a little extra, I'll give him a little extra. And then he'll give me a little extra, and I'll give him a little extra. This doesn't work this way. Everything belongs to him. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in them. Say, well, Pastor, that's Old Testament. That's true. 1 Timothy 4, 5 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. In other words, if you're able to give God thanks for it in your hand, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. 
Everything belongs to the Lord. Which brings me to point number two. If everything belongs to the Lord and He allows me to partner with Him in that, then money isn't money. Money is about discipleship. That's the second point. Money is about discipleship. So I keep using the word money because it's so taboo. I don't want to use words like finances or wealth or poverty, although we will use some of those in a moment. Uh, But regardless of how much or how little money you have, God is at work in your life and He uses money as a tool, especially for the Christian. Especially for the Christian. God uses money that we have or do not have to create and reveal Christ in us. And so some people would say, well, some people have great opportunities to look like Christ. That's right, they're learning self-control. Other people don't have enough in their own mind, and they're learning contentment. You see, money, wherever we are, well, I shouldn't say wherever, but many places we are, we are not where we want to be. And we wish that we were experiencing something different. But when we are learning that money is about discipleship, then we're able to say, wherever I am in regard to money, God is at work. God's at work. And what is God doing? God is taking my abundance or my lack, and He is creating Christ in me. Wherever I am, God is at work in my money. God is at work. And I think that is incredibly important, and it is the first step to being able to be content, is to recognize that God is not allowing us to pay our dues. or What God is doing is creating Christ in us, forming Christ in us. So, Paul even said in Philippians chapter 4, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So, so here's the, are you struggling financially? Maybe. Are you swimming in an abundance financially? Maybe. But regardless of your situation, rather than asking why or just saying thanks, we need to ask God this question. In regard to my current financial situation, how are you forming Christ in me? What can I learn since there is a connection between faith and money? Because there is a connection. There is a connection. And we all don't have the same assets because, because God is not forming Christ in us the same way. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different baggages. We all have different spiritual giftings. We're all not going to have... This is not like Monopoly where everybody starts with the same amount of money and what you do with it determines where you go from here. Life's not Monopoly. Life is about wherever you are knowing that God is using your money to form Christ in you if you will put Him first in it. You can also use it to abuse one way or the other. We'll talk about some of that in a moment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And here's how I know that he's talking about money and faith. He's actually using money as the opposition of God's presence. You cannot serve God and money. Those will be your two masters in this life. Choose one. Chances are 
Chances are there is a sliver of a blind spot in our life where we are tempted to worship money as our God. Luke chapter 16. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, he's referring to himself, to God, who will give you that which is your own? Brings us to our third point, and that is worship with your money. Worship with your money. In, uh, in Bible verses regarding money, we come across a tons of warnings regard to money. Be careful. Guard your heart. Don't be a fool. And if you're not careful, it can be easy to place your hope in money. Take breaths because you have this, this uh, net, if you will. Money is something that we can hold in our hands. It's a number we can look at on our bank account. And it does not require faith to be able to do that. Now we can love God, but we can depend upon our money. And while we say we love God and we depend upon Him, the truth of the matter is there's very few who can not have some level of dependence upon their own abilities. So then our faith isn't balanced so well. We love God, but we depend upon ourselves. God wants us to be balanced so that we can present a balanced faith to those who are already unbalanced. We feel the weight of its absence or we possess a sense of self-sufficiency when we have it in its abundance. Listen, when we are warmed, more warmed by our ability to earn or to gather than we are by His ability to provide, then we are worshiping money rather than God. When we are warmed more by our ability to provide than we are His ability to provide, we're in dangerous, idolatrous place. So when it comes to money, wealthy people are not the only ones who are tempted to sin. So how do we determine who, what, is, what does it mean to be wealthy? Most people would say having more than you need. I've never met anyone who has more than they need. Ever. People joke about that from time to time, but it's not likely. No one has more than they need. We, because we learn to organize our lives around what we have available. But wealth and poverty is not about money. We say all the time, poverty is a mindset. It's a way of thinking. I know, I know wealthy people who live in poverty of mind. I know poor people who don't know where their next meal is coming from who are content. And so poverty and wealth is not about how much money we have. Poverty and wealth is about where we place the importance of money and possessions and where our identity is drawn from. So we have to be able to look at the bank account and, or beyond the bank account and into our hearts honestly and selflessly. And sometimes I think we have a hard time doing that and include people in our lives that can point out blind spots. So, but regardless of how much money you have, you're going to be tempted to sin in different ways. Instead of placing your hope in money or whatever generates income, your job or whatever, place your hope in God. He already owns everything. He is the perfect provider. And He is the one who's using your assets to form Christ in you already. You're learning different things. But the people who have a lot of money are not better than the people who have no money. People who have no money are not insubordinate or subordinate to those who have lots of money. Because money is not our identity. 
Our identity is in Jesus Christ. And that's a very important thing for us to learn. In fact, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. The next thing that I think Scripture tells us about money is that if we're going to live contented, we're going to have to fight to get there. Contentment does not come easy. Again, Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I have learned to be content. It's difficult to be content with yourself, with your work, with your family, with your possessions. And everywhere we go, if it's the radio, if it's the TV, if it's the neighbor, if it's the billboard, wherever we go, we are constantly bombarded with a slew of messages and images telling us, enticing us for bigger, better, more. From wanting a new car to a bigger house to coveting a promotion at work, we live in a world that compels us to be dissatisfied with whatever state we find ourselves in. And this contentment may not sound like a big deal just on the surface. But discontentment is a subtle sin leading us to desire more, something different. Keeps us completely unfocused from Jesus Christ. But it leaves us lacking and empty-handed in the end. Living in a state of discontentment can tempt you to take unnecessary debt just to keep up. Spend where you wouldn't. Or to make unwise decisions at work in an attempt to get ahead. Here, here's just a little bit of advice. I'm trying to put this into my life and it's, it's, it's not very easy. Because, because you, you, know, you, you go to these, uh, uh, what are they called? Um, like strip malls, you know, the, the, uh, what was it called? Re- retail outlets? Yeah, outlets, yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, all these outlets where you can save money. You're not saving money, right? I mean, watch a documentary. They, they, you're not saving any money by one of those things. Here, here's, a, here's a rule. So if they can make you think you're saving money, you'll buy things on sale that you wouldn't buy at full price. Why in the world will we do that? We're, that shows you how easily we are trapped. You know what? Where else can I buy a five-gallon bucket of bent nails for $10? That seems like a great deal. I don't have a five-gallon bucket of bent nails. I should get, you know what? If you get it today, we'll give it to you for $7. Look how much better this deal keeps getting and getting, right? Now, we wouldn't buy bent nails, but there's a whole lot of bent nail buying. Because it's on sale. So they say, you know, you buy one, you get one half off. Well, I wasn't going to, I mean, this morning I didn't wake up and say, I need one of those. But if you're going to let me buy one at full price, I'll take one for half. Snap. The trap just keeps snapping, snapping, snapping as long as we think we're getting a good deal. But we're not. Listen, when you start thinking, this is not a retail trap. This is a satanic trap to keep you away from being able to have Christ formed in you in the way that God intended for Him to be formed in you. It's a trap. And we ought to be insulted. That Satan finds us so vulnerable, but we can't be insulted because we keep falling for it. Contentment is more than just being happy with who you are and what you have. That's not contentment. Contentment is rooted in finding God's love in us. Contentment is rooted in God's love. It's learning to be satisfied wholly in Christ regardless if we have a little or if we have a lot. That's contentment. 
We learn two essential truths about contentment in Scripture. Number one, you have to fight for it. Number two, regardless of where you find yourself, you can be content. It is attainable. A lot of folks would say, well, if I just had another $100 every week, then I could be content. But I'm telling you, you're going to form your life around that $100, and then you're going to need another $100. Boy, if I could just get another $100, if I could just, if I could just... And every time you get that other hundred dollars, your refrigerator goes out or your lawnmower goes out or your tires go out or your whatever thing is. See why? Because all of it belongs to the Lord. And sometimes we work against Christ being formed in us. Sometimes God intervenes and sometimes God lets it go. Proverbs 19.23, I think, is a great verse about contentment, too. It says, The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Listen to this again. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Now listen, you say, wait a minute. So whoever fears the Lord... Is it going to have bad things happen to them? This did not say that you won't have bad things happen to you. It says that there's no such thing as bad things because you're satisfied in the Lord. Yeah, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let me tell you something. To this man who can say this, there is no such thing as harm. That's the point of Proverbs 19. My grace is sufficient for you. Everything that we find that shores us up into fruitfulness, none of them is money. None of, never in Scripture do we find the value of money. I'm not saying it's not valuable, but it's a means to an end, not the end itself. Certainly not where we find our identity, but where our identity is formed. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul said, right? Number three, and shifting gears a little bit. Uh, or four. I don't know what number we're on, actually. I don't really usually do numbers. <clears throat> it's the next one. Uh, that if we're going to be trusted with money, we've got to work to get it. Notice, I'm trying to be careful not to say earn, but that's so much in our vocabulary. But... Paul, many times to the church, when he was writing to one particular church, he actually says, you have heard me say many times while I was among you, and by the way, while he was among them, he was working as a tent maker. You've heard me say it many times while I was among you, if you don't work, what? You don't eat. Yeah, that's pretty hard-hearted, Paul. Some people are unable to work for different reasons. might be an illness or physical handicap may be unable to obtain gainful employment for whatever reason. And so in those situations, God has given three layers of support in this order. Number one, family. Family is the first layer of support. In fact, he says that if you don't help family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And that's really hard because there's so much abuse with money. Money revealing the heart. I won't get into specific instances because it creates too many wounds. But there's a lot of people who have a lot of issues with money. We never see that money is the issue, but whether it's addictions or bad decisions upon bad decisions or investments or maybe even laziness, but we wear our family 
out. Hey, I need, I need, I need, I need. And then you just squander it. So here's, here's a good advice. Don't waste your asks. Because you may really need it. And when you really need it, you're going to have already burned your bridge. Which brings us to the second layer of support, and that is the church. The church, God said, there's people in our society who doesn't have the layer of family. Widows, orphans, those who don't have that mechanism in place. The church should provide for that. Specifically, those that are already in the church. If you look at all that Scripture has to say about this issue, in some of the 2,000 passages about money, you will find that Scripture is really, really clear who qualifies for church help and who does not qualify for church help. I don't have time to go into all of that, but it's very, very specific. The third layer of support is the state. And I don't know why it has existed the way that it does, but that has become the first layer of support for most people. Without being too political, I would say the state loves that because it gives control. It's a very clear biblical principle that the borrower is the slave to the lender. And if the state can turn us into the borrower, then they can exercise control over us. And they do, by the way, in ways that we don't even recognize. So we have to be careful if we're going to don't burn your bridges, don't need money for things that are not forming Christ in you. Number two, make sure that you're living the way Christ calls us to live so that you can qualify for church benevolence. Number three, when all of those things are exhausted, there are some mechanisms in place in the government to help. Now on the other side of this coin, there are many examples and commandments in Scripture to work diligently. To work, work produces income, not entitlements. And since we are created in the image of God, we are hardwired to work. It comes to us naturally to create, to make. And what's more, God has commanded us to work. And if we're not careful, we will actually curse work. And we see work as a curse. But Adam was commanded to work before sin. Work isn't a curse. Work is a blessing that God gives us. The curse is sweat and thorns and thistles. But when he went to the cross... Guess who had thorns and thistles around his head paying the price for that curse as well? The curse was never work. So, since sin entered the world, chances are we have a warped view of work. And it's caused a warped view of our own hearts. How can we have a warped view of work? Well, some people have turned work into their life. And they abuse work. They work too much. Work too much. And if you work too much, you make work your God. Nobody makes work their God. But the benefit of work becomes their God, which is the love of money. Some reject work altogether and become lazy. Or sometimes we twist work. Say, if I can make an income doing this... It might be illegal, it might be criminal, it might be taking advantage of people, but it produces, and so we twist work. 
do something sinful. But in Christ, on the cross, God redeems work. Here's some good advice. Deuteronomy 23, 19. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money. Interest on food. Interest on anything that is lent for interest. In other words, what he is saying is, there are going to be times where somebody comes and they need from you. You're going to have more than you need so that you can help people when they do need. But when they need, don't charge interest. That's what pagan people do. Don't, if you want to give it to them, that's probably better. That's, this is just my commentary. Because that will save you a whole lot of heartache for when they don't repay it. Just go ahead and give it. If you can, just go ahead and give it. And that way you don't have to hold it against them later when they don't talk to you. Right? I'm not speaking from... I'm just... Shut up now. Deuteronomy 24.20 When you beat your olive trees, when you shake the olives off of them, don't go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. So even the fatherless and the immigrant and the, 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 uh, the orphan, there's still an expectation of leave it there, let them work for it. Your tree produced the harvest, but there needs to be some exercise of work on their part as well. Now listen to this, and this is very important. I actually have this one highlighted and underlined and... Really, really calling it out. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11. I want you to listen to me very, very closely. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. So many verses of Scripture. Think of the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, you know, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor. <sighs> Can I not just write a check? <laughs> you know, you got to give it all away. He walked away sorrowful. Remember? You remember the verse? Verses? Walked away sorrowful. Why did he walk away sorrowful? Because, he, because Jesus didn't answer the question? No, Jesus answered the question. He wasn't sorrowful because there wasn't an answer. He was sorrowful because he had great wealth. And he was a good man. Kept the law from his youth. Good man. Moral man. He just served the wrong God. But he thought he did it. So the disciples watch Jesus. They see Jesus' answer. They said, well, he didn't sell everything to become a believer. The guy you healed last week, he didn't sell everything to become a believer. Jesus said, no. No, that, I don't, and listen, and I don't know, I'm not judging, I do not know if Jesus already knew that he wasn't going to do that. I don't know if he was setting him into a position, you know, to, to really force him to test his own heart. Maybe he did, maybe he did come to Christ later. How would we know? We don't know that. What we do know is that at that moment, the disciples said, can anybody be saved then? It was so hard. And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So in other words, you look at that, am I going to sell all my possessions and give everything away? Am I going to trust wholly, completely upon the sovereignty of Jesus Christ? Whew. 
that's impossible you know, until you do it. And then once you do it, you'll realize that He really is our provider. He really is our caregiver. But listen, you've got to say no to the things of this world to be able to recognize that. In quoting Jesus in Acts chapter 20, they said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Right? And, and we say, well, it's, that's true. It is more blessed to give. Not, I mean, everybody wants to receive, right? But more blessed means beneficial to be the one who is able to give than the one who's having to ask. Which one do you want to be? Listen, if you ask for long enough, Jesus says, which one do you want to be? The one who's capable of giving or the one that's having to ask? It's more blessed to give. You can be the one that's asking, but He's given us the framework so that we don't have to be that one that's asking. So many verses, I'm not going to be able to have time to get them on. If you want a list of the verses, just, just let me know and I will be glad to, to share it with you. Getting, we're getting close, but we need to learn, this is the next point, to kill greed. Greed is a terrible thing. We think about a greedy person, some people will immediately think of a politician, Maybe the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, athletes, musicians, actors, actresses, these people we think of big greedy, too, you know, it's never, nothing is ever enough. Here's one thing you need to know about greed. Regardless of what image it pulls up, greed's bad. Scripture is clear. Greed is bad and it exists in every one of us. It's natural. It's part of the natural flesh desires. So whatever image comes to mind, when you think about greed, you should see your own reflection in a mirror because it's in us, every one of us, to differing degrees, but we're also capable of killing it. This is what Paul said, put to death, therefore, this is Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Whew, this is a deep list. And greed, which is idolatry. Greed? Not so bad. Everybody struggles with greed. Look what list greed's in. There's a good chance you probably don't think you have a greed problem. So here's, here's some questions. Are you satisfied with how much money you make? Do you want to be able to purchase things you're not purchasing? Does your desire for more money and possessions choke out your interest in God? Do you spend more time on pursuing things than you do? I hear people all the time, and I, including myself, by the way. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to read Scripture. I don't have time to go to church. I don't have time to care. I don't have time to go do this. I don't have time to minister. I don't have time to serve. I don't have... Why? Some because anybody in this room has more time than anybody else. It's choices that we make and what's important to us. Verse, uh, Proverbs 28, verse 22, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. 
What was it Jesus said when he's talking about the parable of the soils? Listen to this, Matthew 13, 22. As for what was sown among thorns, that's so interesting to me. This is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. You remember the story of Jesus, uh, the, the uh, jolly rancher, <laughs> the happy farmer, the man who goes out and has a ban- banner year and he's he got more, more stuff than he's got barns and he tears down barns and he builds bigger barns and he's so excited. He fills those barns and he's the envy of the neighborhood and he says he kicks back and he says, oh, take ease. All this hard work's really paid off. Now I don't have to work anymore. Greedy, greedy, greedy. And what was it that the Lord said to him? Thou fool. Everything that you did was so that your future, every bit of your ability was given to protect your future. And now that you got what you wanted, tonight your soul will be required of you. Foolish. Foolish. And then Jesus says this, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, I'm going to hit some of this uh, other pretty quick, but I want to move on to the next one. And that is to be mindful of debt. Uh. You know, if I say anything else, this is, this is one of the things that I wanted to spin on. Did you know that America right now, Americans, not America, that's like $22 trillion that America's in debt. You know, you take care of your house, but man, whew, we got a problem. Uh, and it's a major problem. But just in our citizenship, there's a $13.54 trillion debt in the households of Americans. Now, I know that includes mortgages and educational loans and all those sorts of things, but $13.5 trillion of debt. Surely, you have some of that. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes it feels like, you know, I have all of it, but I know that that's not true. But listen, did you know that finances are among the most, the greatest stressors in America, and debt is the number one financial stress. Significant, significant issue. Now, here's three things about debt that I want you to know. Number one, God does not forbid debt. He does not forbid debt. Number two, He does highly caution against it. And number three, taking on debt is generally a bad idea. It's a bad idea. So even though God doesn't forbid it, He still wants us to be cautious But there's a difference between debt that you take on that you know you can repay based on your best intellect. And it's one thing not to be able to... Nobody can... Well, few people can buy a house outright. So we recognize that, well, I make money. It's how much I make. This is how much I can afford based on all of these things. I'm going to step out on faith, trust that God's going to provide for me, and I can make these manageable payments. It's a whole other thing to say is, see, I'm unemployed. I, I haven't had a job in so, so long. I really don't like to work anyway. Uh, I think I'm going to buy a house. Uh, and so then what they're going to do is they're going to come to you and say, hey, will you co-sign my loan? Because the bank is smart. And they know when there's a bad debt. And the number one thing that they want to sell you is debt. 
And some people who want it can't qualify for debt. How bad is that? So be careful about the debts you can pay. Be careful. Just be careful. Just because you need it doesn't mean you have to have it today. You know, we've got to make some other decisions to get there. And I know, and, I'm, and I don't want to speak with judgment. I really, I really am not. And, and we really give, you know, the, the current entry-level workers a bad rap in saying, you know, they want to live like their parents already and they're just their first job and they already want to make sixty, seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 a year. That's true, but my generation wanted that too. And so did, you know, every generation that lived before me wanted to do that too. But here's what I would say to that, is you've got to start from wherever you are, and part of Christ being formed into us is learning how to make those decisions. And there's a whole lot of decisions that you've you got to learn to make by failing a few times. Again, that's typically about contentment and learning to build instead of getting there in day one. Because whatever you get hastily, it ain't going to last very long. Little by little, you'll add to it. Okay, so here's a couple of verses. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 28, 12. The Lord will open to you His good treasury. <laughs> Everything belongs to Him. This isn't a building. <laughs> he will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations. Talking to Israel. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. <laughs> So was Israel always what they wanted? No, they were not. And there were times that it would have benefited them economically to borrow from other nations. Every time they did, it was to their destruction. Because with that came their idols. Now, what he says is, you, sh- you can lend to others because it's better to give than to receive. But don't, but don't borrow. Just like Abraham, when he went and fought off the armies and rescued Lot back and all the armies said, or the king said, we're going to give you the the bounty, the spoils of war. And Abraham said, no, 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 no. I don't want anybody to ever be able to say that you kings made me wealthy. I want that to belong to the Father. That's the same principle here. Uh, I don't know that that's a command to us as individuals, but I think it does give us a, a notion of God's heart that if you're going to be one of the other as a follower of Jesus Christ, do you want to be the asker or do you want to be the, the, the giver? And there's a way for us to be able to be the giver. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7. The rich rules over the poor. The borrow is a slave to the lender. We already talked about that one, but now listen to this. Proverbs 22, verse 26. Be not one of those who gives pledges. Listen, this is important. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. Now listen, this is great advice. What the Lord is saying to us through the Proverbs is this. Don't co-sign loans. If the bank says it's a bad investment, I know you love them. Don't co-sign. Because they're going to be in debt and you're going to have to pay it. It's got to be a better way. It's got to be a better way. You say, well, I don't know any other way. Well, we'll have to figure that out. But Scripture is pretty clear. That is a bad idea. The wicked borrows, but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. 
Matthew 5, 20, 42. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Very quickly, I want to give a quick uh, commercial. Uh, that brings us to the next point, which is manage your money. Manage your money. What assets you do have as Christ is being formed in you, you have to have a plan. You have to know what Christ looks like. You've got to be working toward Christ's likeness to know how to use the tools that God is investing in you. You have to know what the plan is. And then the second point is, you have to work that plan. I know that's great advice in lots of areas. Have a plan. Don't just spend because you can. Have a plan. Work the plan. Now, for those of you who might would benefit, when September gets here, I think it's the second week of September, we're going to start offering Financial Peace University. So if you're interested in knowing how to come up with a plan, Using biblical principles, we want to be a help to you. So if you'll go to the connection point today, put your name on a list, we'll start communicating with you what that plan's going to look like. So uh, if you're interested in that, make sure you do that today. And I just saved myself a couple of minutes in my sermon notes, okay? So let's move on. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and give give you the last one, all right? Here's the the last point. Mo' money, mo' problems, okay? (laughs) More money, more problems. No joke. Now, we're all prone to worry about money. It makes perfect sense. Worry begets every sort of fear, and, and uh, then we become slaves to it. We become absorbed by it. We become consumed by it. And life then becomes lived by fear, not faith. And this cannot and will not ever please God. So a lot of people think, well, I've got a money problem. What I need is more money. Well, money probably isn't the problem. Priorities are the problem. Heart is the problem. Contentment is the problem. Not more money. Because if you got more money, you got... Oh, come on. You say, if I could only get a raise, now all of a sudden I'm angry at my boss. My boss isn't my problem. If I could only get that promotion, and now all of a sudden I'm in competition with my coworkers instead of loving them. I'm judging them, comparing myself to them. If I could just score big on the lottery... Now, my expendable income becomes my faith rather than my God. Wouldn't it be nice for me to come up with some solution so I could have a good, high-paying side job or some kind of hustle money? I don't have to work very hard and be able to get more money. And now, all of a sudden, time, church, family, ministry, all becomes collateral damage. Acquiring more money may not fix your problem. But here's what always will. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Now listen, I know that sounds simple. I could spend lots of time telling you everything that we ought to do. But you know what? I should be looking in the mirror right now. So I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to tell you this. That when Jesus Christ is first in your life and you begin to live according to His kingdom principles, He will order out your priorities in a perfect way. But when you come fixated on certain things and fixing things yourself... You're going to mess it up real bad. So the whole point of God giving us lots and lots of good advice, biblical principles to live by, is so that we will see Christ and have Christ formed in us. So this morning I simply want us to evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves, am I seeing Christ in me? 
Am I seeing Christ being formed in me and through me? If not, we may have some blind spots we've not recognized. And I think that's the real issue. Not what does the Bible say about money, but what does the Bible say about Christ being formed in me and what that looks like as ministry and outreach to the nations. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word this morning, and I just ask that you would help us to to be wise. You said we don't have wisdom because we don't ask for it. Well, this morning we're asking, and I just ask that you would would reveal those blind spots. Use people, if necessary. Use your word. Use your spirit. Use the sense that you have given us from creation. Um, And I just pray that we would be able to to have a word to speak to our nation, our family, our friends, our neighbors who are caught in a trap. So help us to live freely. Help us to live contented lives. Contented with our identity being in Christ. And thank you that your grace is sufficient. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.